You're listening to The Book Show here on TM Live. Philip Henscher is one of my favorite writers. I follow his commentary in The Guardian newspaper and The Spectator. And his novel, King of Badgers, King of the Badgers, a few years ago, was a wonderful portrait of a seemingly idyllic seaside town with a very vicious underside. He's an acute telling observer of human nature with a very sly sense of humor. Now he's back with a new novel. It's a huge, sprawling book. contains several narratives, and it's called The Emperor Waltz. It's really a book about outsiders and what he calls the contagion of ideas and how radical beliefs can spread and change the landscape profoundly. I love big, immersive novels like these that sort of send you off to the Internet to look for, as I did, um, pictures of Paul Klee um, or to listen to The Emperor Waltz itself. But it also leads us to consider the... The, the rule breakers around us today. So there is a sort of a moral side to the to the novel as well. Philip was in Cape Town recently for the Open Book Festival. I sat down to talk to him and I asked him about the genesis of the novel. So Philip, the April Waltz, it's a vast book, a vast canvas. Tell me about the genesis of it. It's really about the ways in which ideas change and the way in which an idea, a principle, can start by and being an outrageous suggestion just shared between a couple of friends um, in private. It can move to a small group of outsiders, a group of, uh, of people that uh, large society despises and couldn't disagree with more. And before you know it, it's out on the street and people are proclaiming it and against, uh, against the will of the population and suddenly everybody believes it. Now, I really want to know, you know, when do people's minds change? When does, when does it suddenly become normal in the Roman Empire to be a Christian? When does it suddenly become normal to think that your life ought to be as simple as possible? It ought to have um, fewer decorations in it. It ought, um, it ought to be about equality. When did it become normal? When did people stop thinking that it was a grotesque idea that two men should get married to each other if they wanted to, and it start to become something that people just um, accept as a possible thing that might even happen in their own family? And the um, the, uh, the, uh, the thing that fascinated me is that I think it's very rare for people to sit down and think quite consciously, well, I believed that yesterday, but I've thought about it, I've considered the evidence, and now I've completely changed my mind. People, when they change their mind, it's as though an idea has, has drifted into their heads, and they're suddenly convinced that they always believed that. They, they were always really proponents of, uh, of equality. They were always proponents of, uh, of gay marriage. And that's a very interesting subject for a novelist, the unconscious change, really. So it's about um, three historical periods. One is the, the opening of a gay bookshop at the difficult um, moment in 1979 when um, Mrs. Thatcher was just coming to power um, and AIDS was just starting up. One is about the, the radical designers in um, post-First World War Germany at the Bauhaus who wanted to simplify things and wanted to uh, make life more beautiful and by shedding it of ornament, of, uh, of structure, of hierarchy, just as Germany was really uh, collapsing. And the third is the, is the rise of uh, Christianity in the Roman Empire in, um, in third century Africa. And the interesting thing there is, of course, the, 
tendency of one outsider group to become, over the um, course of centuries, uh, part of the oppressors and the and the majority in the the next generation. So that. Um, the Christians in the third century are a beleaguered minority of outsiders, but uh, by the time of the gay bookshop, they're the upholders of the uh, moral majority. So those ironies were very much on my mind. I was surprised in the in the story. It occurred to me in the story of Saint Perpetua of the, the the Christians and how they would sacrifice themselves. There was absolutely no compromise at all, and it struck me that perhaps Christ that was not what he wanted. That, 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 in fact, his believers, a couple of centuries on, had kind of taken his teachings in another direction. Yes, I guess. I, do you know, I don't really know. I mean, my, my interest was really in the sheer kind of human element of it. And the thing that, um, the thing that grabbed my imagination about the early Christians was the Roman accounts of their trials. And clearly, they deeply irritated the Romans. The Romans had very long practice in co-opting aspects of all sorts of religions into their own practice. They couldn't see why this couldn't happen again with the Christians. And they would say to the Christians in court, and we have, you know, not far from transcripts of these trials, they would say to them, please just go to the temple once a year, make just one token sacrifice, and we'll forget all about the other things. And the Christians in insisted on being taken taken seriously, being taken as as martyrs, they wanted to be sacrificed. And you can see, reading the accounts of the trials, how how often the the magistrate um, just lost his temper and said, "Say, oh, very well, just take them away, take them away, and have them put to death." You know, they clearly annoyed them no end. So it was that sort of human drama of conflict and and the sense of being in the right that um, that was interesting to me, rather than whether they really were in the right or whether the after all you know in the the third century two centuries after Jesus their knowledge about Jesus would have been very very patchy it would have. Um, uh, would have been passed from hand to hand. They would have known. They would have known a lot about him, but they wouldn't have had a single book like the Bible that they could have uh, could have referred to. I mean, my story actually, Perpetua, on the eve of her death, regrets that she's she as yet knows very little about the man who founded uh, her religion. So that's a very very interesting moment in the history of Christianity. That sense of everything being in flux and not quite knowing what's the case or what they ought to be standing up for. And as you say, without, without, the, um, without books, without anything like that, it was just word of mouth. And, and, and what was the appeal to, to them? What was the appeal to the early Christians? It's a big question. What is the appeal of placing yourself in an outsider group that could lead to, to disaster, could lead to your being an outcast, could lead to your being put to death? It's almost unanswerable, really. It's certainly true that um, you have a sense when you go to some of these early Christian sites. There's um, some catacombs in Rome that um, had an extraordinary effect on me when I went to see them. I'd never really thought of the um, early Christians as, um, as being fun. But um, clearly, you know, when you look at the graffiti, they were, they were absolutely adoring the life that they led. They, they were with a small group of friends of, um, 
of co-conspirators. They absolutely loved the life they were leading. And there is this, this sense of, um, in an outsider group, that this is the thing that really matters. This is the thing which is leading you to some kind of uh, fulfillment. On top of that, you know, there is this sense that um, people genuinely believe in these outsider groups, that they're right, that not everybody realises that they're right, but they are right. Putting it like that makes it sound very benevolent. But it's important to remember that throughout history and, um, you know, throughout my book, there are people who believe that they're in the right, that they have to bring their truth to the masses, who were very much in the wrong. They were people whose whose stories would have um, led to huge, huge cruelty and disaster. One of the things about the Bauhaus episode in my, um, in my book is that it was happening at the same time as the spread of Nazism in Germany. Those people believed as well, just like the early Christians, that all you had to do was change one mind at a time and society would be made very much better as a result. It's, um, it's an interesting question why malevolence and benevolence spread in exactly the same way how some um, how some intellectual movements spread and spread and spread and others reach a, uh, a brick wall really you portray it so effectively in the book because um, you set it in the Weimar Republic where where it's where the prices are going up by the minute not not just every day so people are are losing on, on that level so when you get those first the whispers of those first meetings mm. happening where it's very easy to start blaming the lack of food or the cost of food on, on a, another certain... You can understand why the idea mm. took off. I think that um, unless people have lived through an episode of, um, of serious inflation, I don't think they can really appreciate how much of an erosion it's, um, it forms in the structure of people's lives. Suddenly something that you thought you could rely upon just disappears and you have no idea what's going to happen next and you know I remember this uh, from my childhood in the UK and there was a period of high inflation it was nowhere near as, uh, as, as great as it has been it didn't even begin to qualify as hyperinflation but still I can remember the sense that uh, things might have lost you know a fifth or a quarter of their value um, in the next uh, in the next few months what it must have been like in Germany when you felt that unless you spent your monthly salary in the next half an hour on food for the rest of the month, that by tomorrow your monthly salary would be completely worthless. It's unimaginable. It really is unimaginable. I asked um, a, uh, a historian period, a great friend of mine, to what on earth they did. And he said um, they ran to the market and they bought an enormous cheese and then they just lived on the cheese for the next 30 days that's all they did and the, the whole of um, um, the whole of society was turned upside down the people that suffered a lot were the people on a civil service pension you know that before the before the the war they had a um, uh, before, at the end of the war they had a perfectly respectable um, annual income in about four years' time, that income wouldn't even have bought them a newspaper. It just wouldn't. It was, um, and their, their lives were destroyed. And then there are st extraordinary stories of people coming through it that simply had 200 US dollars, and all they did 
was just use the US dollars as security for, for borrowing. And at the end of the, the period, they still had the 200 US, US dollars. They'd come through it perfectly well. And suddenly the 200 US dollars would buy them a large farmhouse in the country. It was a period when all financial certainty was removed. And I think when all financial certainty is removed, you don't have to be a capitalist to feel that some important thing on which you've been resting has been just taken away from you. I'm afraid the story is all too familiar to us here because of what happened in Zimbabwe yes. um, a few years ago. So we absolutely have first-hand experience of that, That's, yes. um, of that market and the fear because if you cannot pay for food, somebody's going to stop and, and people will stop producing the food and, and, and then you, you get into that cycle. But yeah. Philip, tell me, um, tell me about the Bauhaus. So interesting. We've, mm. we've come to take it for granted um, in our times. We know it academically, it, it was a design movement, but we forget how radical it was. Yes, it was absolutely radical. It had this vision of, of craft being moved back into the centre of society. A sense that, um, that actually good design should be something that's available to everybody. It shouldn't be a matter of luxury goods for the few. It should, um, you know, the chairs that everybody sits on, the houses that everybody lives in, that should be well designed and as simple and as attractive um, as possible. It was um, a simple, you know, very kind of well-structured um, conceptual program. When they, you know, in the actual execution of it, all sorts of um, political considerations ventured into it, and they were always uh, rowing with each other about who was the better communist and so on. But as a whole, the message was simple and clear, and it went out into the world. It was one of the inadvertent triumphs of Hitler that in trying to... Um, suppress the Bauhaus and he put an end to the, the Nazis put an end to the Bauhaus in 1933, they closed the school down. Well, what happened next? Um, the principles of the Bauhaus were spread throughout the world. If you, if you go to any country almost in the, uh, in the world and you think, and you try and find out who the, who the originator of a flat roof elegant modernism that suddenly starts appearing in the 1930s and 1940s and say, where does this come from? Almost invariably, it's someone who was expelled from Germany by the Nazis who um, had some kind of connection to the Bauhaus. It's uh, an extraordinary fact, really. I'm absolutely sure that if, um, if I looked into it, there would be some flat-roofed wonderful modernist architects in South Africa that would uh, turn out to be pupils of the Bauhaus or pupils of pupils of the, the Bauhaus. They certainly are in the Transvaal, what was called the Transvaal. There you are, mm. there you are. But uh, it's, um, it, is an, it is an inspiring movement and it's, it is to do with all sorts of ideas of how to live our lives in society. You can understand how it took an ideological turn, but um, fundamentally I think there's nothing, um, there's nothing wrong with it. I think there's a, um, a fundamental view that, uh, uh, that uh, good design ought to be for everybody and that good design is not just a matter of what things look like, but how lives should be led. The form and function. But didn't the art and crafts movement aim to do that too, William Morris? Yeah. The arts and crafts movements is a very important forerunner of the Bauhaus. They were very influential on the, the Bauhaus. It's very interesting. 
Uh, if you go and look, for instance, at uh, so the early years of social housing in Berlin, there's a totally fascinating architectural tour that you can take in Berlin that's organised by the Bauhaus Archive. It starts with a, a charming suburb, wonderfully called Uncle Tom's Cabin, this suburb in Berlin. And it is absolutely classic arts and crafts. And then you can see that the next thing they built was kind of stripped down, simplified, but it had the same kind of principles. Everything should work. And it goes steadily onwards until, um, without, almost without a break, there are very simple geometric lines. Everything functions. Everything's painted white. It's got flat roofs. The, the works. There's a deep connection between the arts and crafts movement, who remember were kind of uh, revolutionary socialists in their, their time, and the, um, and the people of the, the Bauhaus uh, 50 years later. So the book Emperor Waltz is well over 600 pages long. I know, I'm so sorry. Not I'm at so all. Sorry. I, I would have wanted another 200. But an unwieldy book for an author to control or to wrangle, uh, so to speak. What I liked uh, about it was, was a sort of an echo chamber effect um, between the five narratives where you, um, you, you threw forward and you threw back, but with small details about the blackbird itself and uh, the arts and crafts, uh, the uh, Bauhaus teapot that turned up many years later in, in London. But yes. you can't overdo that because at some stage you've got to trust your reader, don't you, yes. to, to, be what, to be getting it. Yes, absolutely. I think that, um, well, I think you always have to trust your reader um, quite, a, quite a lot. Um, and I think there's always more to discover about a, a book as you, as you go into it. But that thing of the echo chamber, it seems to me not so much an aesthetic principle, but a very true-to-life sort of principle. I, I think that um, so often as you go through life, you see somebody whose face uncannily recalls someone you knew 20 years ago. You, you just find yourself in a, um, in a place and you look out and suddenly you know, the smell of a street or something, it reminds you of something completely, completely unlike. Those kind of connections, they're very personal ones, but they're very powerful. And they're always kind of small details, I think. It's always um, the way somebody carries themselves or the smell of a corridor that takes you right back to, you know, your first school or something like that. So those small details of um, somebody you know, wiping their hair in a particular way, for instance, or the song of a blackbird. I think that people will understand it as they, they go through the book as they, as in the same way that people can go through their lives. But we have, we have recurring motifs in our lives. Very much, mm. very much so. And we, we have, um, we have flavours that, that remind us of particular places. We have particular smells. We all know what our childhood smelled like. There's a particular there's a particular taste of um, of milk that always returns me to 1971 and um, a junior school in suburban London and being made to drink the government free milk. That's um, you know that's never going to go away. And there's uh, there's all sorts of um, uh, there's all sorts of smells and tastes and sights that are, that are just like that. And the book I think um, tries to construct um, some of those in. Um, in a slightly um, artificial way, so that by the time the book comes to an end, people will be uh, be feeling, oh yes, that's uh, that reminds me of, and the connections uh, the connections take force.
very, very effective. Can I ask you if your next book is going to be a slim or a, a novella after this? It is, actually. It is. It's going to be a novella. It's, well, not a novella. It's going to be a short novel, I think. It's, um, I think it's going to be a love story. I've never written a straight-down-the-line love story, and I think uh, love stories oughtn't to be written by the very young. I think that um, they should probably be written by people who've been through it and have seen it from both sides, can, can see the, the power of love, but can also see how you can be misled by it. I'm only just um, only just starting on it. I'm making um, I'm making notes for it, and um, let's see. Actually, I haven't even sold it to my publisher yet. I haven't told my publishers. I'm telling um, <laughs> I'm telling South Africans about uh, about my book before anyone else knows about it. Anyway, there we go. Well, I look forward to it very much. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Philip. That was Philip Henscher talking about the Emperor Waltz, which is published by Fourth Estate and is in store now.